News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about the future of Stanley Park and what that might mean or what it might entail. Joining us now is our contributor, Raji Sohal. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. I have to say I am still buzzing from this weekend's gorgeous weather. And I was, was really nice. lucky because I found myself downtown on Friday, on Saturday, on Sunday, all three days. At some point in the day, I was at Stanley Park meeting up with uh, friends and it was stunning. I'll tell you what I loved the most about it. It was that I was outside, sunny day, and the place was packed with people. I don't care about everyone's pictures, about the traffic. What I saw was amazing. It was walkers, runners, cyclists, rollerbladers. It was people moving their bodies, being healthy, super active. And it was like all across the seawall. I think probably thousands of people, it would be safe to say. And later on in the day, when I got on Twitter, as I always do at the end of the day, I saw that uh, there were a lot of angry drivers. Now, I did encounter some of those angry drivers when I was leaving Stanley Park. Uh, Lots of single occupancy drivers. Uh, Mostly, I saw people like just two people, like a pair of people in a single car uh, that was jam packed, um, you know, downtown, lots of traffic. But it was May long weekend. Major backups in any downtown core, I think, would experience that kind of traffic on a May long weekend. Uh, So I I was surprised that people didn't come to expect that. But what annoyed me? So I'm not going to be one of these people who's going to say, we need to make Stanley Park a perfect place for for only cyclists or one of these people who says we need to get rid of cyclists and just have cars in our in our parks. What I will say is this. We need to get rid of those horse-drawn buggies in Stanley Park. Oh, you're uh, going there, Raji? Are I'm you going really? there, Simi. I really am. And I'm going to bring the heat. The thing oh, is, boy. those horse-drawn buggies take up so much space. They move incredibly slow. I saw toddlers who were like one or two years old moving faster than those horse-drawn buggies. And like, come on, this is not the 1800s. They're not serving that many people, and yet they take up so much space. And I think of other great parks in the world. I think of like Central Park in New York City. They have horse-drawn buggies there. In London. Well, get rid of them there too. But <laughs> I mean, Central Park for sure. I've seen I've seen horse drawn buggies there. Like it's a big thing in Central Park. So you're saying you don't see in Central Park is arteries uh, enabling cars to like park in the center of a glorious park. Now, I know that there are people with mobility issues that need to access our parks. And I actually got to the park. This was kind of interesting. Um, It was almost an experiment. On the first day, I drove uh, and parked quite close. On the second day, um, my family, to my kids, I say we have to pay a tax for when we drive the next day, we have to to do something where we're walking or cycling instead. And so the next day, we actually, uh, we took the bus in. And was it as convenient? For me, yeah, it was actually uh, as driving. And then the third day, uh, everybody met at the park. Uh, My friends and I, we all met in different ways. So everyone came in in a different format. And it was accessible for all of us. Now, if someone has extreme mobility issues uh, and they are concerned about accessing the park, we can talk about that. But what I saw was a lot of wow angry single occupancy drivers who were 
really, uh, you know, not in a situation where they needed to uh, be in the center of the park um, on foot. Like they, these people were so angry just in their cars, bumper to bumper traffic when some of them surely, Simi, could have found Hmm. another way to get into the park. Here's what I'm thinking. Maybe it's time to radically overhaul how we think about accessing or how what we want Stanley Park to be. And I'm thinking about something you mentioned New York City. I'm thinking about what they did with Times Square and how they decided that it was not going to be as much for cars as it was going to be for people to be able to walk through and people said, "Oh, you can't do that. You can't shut it down." And they've done a lot of that. They've taken a lot of the lanes out. So, if you're going, I guess my thing was if you're going to take a lane away from cars, how are you still going to make sure people can get around? Like, do they need to have like an open air bus service that, you know, that's for free, that takes people around, encourage you to park your car elsewhere. You can get on this bus and go around the park and see the sites. Like, how do you make everybody live together more cooperatively in Stanley Park? You know that I love talking to people. And so that when I, even when I'm out with my family, I'm still talking to total strangers. And I, and I talk to a lot of people at Stanley Park on the weekend um, about how they got there. And of course, a lot of the folks that I, I was talking to were already actively using the bike lane. So they were people who, who had their rollerblades with them, cycled there or walked there and then rented a bike, that kind of thing. These paths were so used that I could almost imagine more psych, I'm not suggesting this, but I'm just saying, I could imagine that if there were more paths allowing people to use the seawall, uh, to cycle, to to run, to do all these other things, that it would be even more filled with people hmm. using it. So it wasn't that, you know, the suggestion that, oh, we took away a car lane and I don't see more people cycling, I don't buy that for a second. Um, I spend so much of my summers at Stanley Park enjoying different parts of the seawall And I see only an increase in use. And I love it. I love that families, individuals, people of all ages, all backgrounds can just go there and it's free and you can just enjoy this like gorgeous part of Vancouver and and use it how you want to. Hmm. Okay. So that's the thing. All of this just feels like it is prompting a bigger discussion on what to do with it, right? It's clearly a lot of people want to enjoy it. How do we make sure everybody can enjoy it together? What would be your one suggestion? You want the horse-drawn carriages to be gone? Oh my goodness, Simi. I want those gone like 20 years ago, please. <laughs> okay. Now we know how <laughs> much for my, about that. my inbox is about to explode <laughs> for my listeners. Well, no, I'll tell people, send it to me, and that way we can talk about it on the show. But Raji, thank there you very go. much for that. <laughs> Thanks, Simi. What is the best way to improve the situation for Stanley Park? Looking ahead to make sure everybody can enjoy it. How do we make that happen? Is there an equitable way or is that just not is not, not realistic? Simi at cknw.com. Let's hear your thoughts on that for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it was not going to be an easy reception, and it certainly was not that for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau yesterday. He attended the day-long memorial marking one year since the detection of graves that are believed to hold the remains of hundreds of children at a former Kamloops residential school. To talk more about how the event went, joining us now is Kamal Karmali, who is a global BC reporter, of course, who is in Kamloops. Uh, Kamal, thanks for being back with us. Hey, good morning, Simi. So how was the Prime Minister received there? 
Uh, he was uh, received mostly with open arms. Uh, there was a lot of cheering, drumming, uh, traditional uh, dancing, traditional singing. When he arrived, he went into uh, what is called the uh, powwow arbor, which is just steps away from the former residential school site uh, where many of these children attended, uh, just steps away from uh, where these suspected unmarked graves were found one year ago yesterday. Uh, so he spoke uh, one-on-one, went, made his way through the crowd at the arbor. Uh, and, uh, you know, there were some hecklers that were following him, uh, telling him he was a fake, uh, telling him that, uh, you know, they're not welcome, he's not welcome here. But uh, I would say they were vastly outnumbered for the most part. Um, then he went inside and spoke with elders, uh, spoke with survivors one-on-one. That was a private event. Media were not invited. He came back out and, uh, you know, spoke to a mostly amicable crowd that received him once again quite well. But there were the hecklers that were right up in front and center. Uh, then he addressed them head-on. He said, look, I know there's a lot of anger, hurt, and pain, but your elders have welcomed me here. Uh, so he spoke to them directly, and then uh, they they were sort of drowned out by the rest of the crowd. So mostly a warm welcome, but, uh, you know, not welcomed by all. Uh, some were to Kemlis to Schlumpik, but there were also other, uh, you know, uh, First Nations right. groups that were here. Uh, I noticed from watching the coverage as well on Global that, I mean, it was, this was a pretty big ceremony and it was extensive, like a, a big arena, like a big facility, and lots of people turned out for this. Absolutely. And, you know, it doesn't just... Um, ring, uh, it, it doesn't just mean something for the people here of Tekemlis to Shwepnik. It right. means something for the Indigenous groups all across Canada. So the people we spoke to were from different First Nations across BC, uh, some coming in from uh, Saskatoon, uh, even Manitoba, uh, because as you know, uh, yesterday, uh, one year ago yesterday, it, it really uh, sparked a national conversation about reconciliation and what this country has done to the Indigenous peoples uh, for decades. And, and uh, so the discovery of those suspected unmarked graves uh, prompted more discoveries of suspected unmarked graves across the country. And, uh, you know, it, it, it eventually resulted in an apology from the Pope, uh, a delegation that went to the Vatican. So it's been quite a whirlwind year for uh, a lot of uh, these indigenous groups in their journey to reconciliation. It, so a lot of that was a celebration about that. A lot of that mm-hmm. was about healing and healing together. And, uh, you know, they call themselves survivors for a reason. They're celebrating the fact that they've survived this intergenerational drama. That's what a lot of yesterday was about. And that's why so many people attended. And what's going to happen now, though, Kamal? Like, what are the next steps that the community will be taking? Yeah, so uh, there were questions posed to Trudeau about next steps. Um, You know, the federal government uh, did say it will commit $300 million to uh, help Indigenous groups across the country uh, near former residential school sites possibly uncover and dig for more suspected unmarked graves where children did go missing. Um, But Global News has learned that the actual exhumation and repatriation process itself, if what, and when those uh, unmarked graves are found um, could take tens of millions of dollars more. So is, is the federal government willing to commit to that? Trudeau dodged the answer, would not give a, commit, uh, a commitment, uh, monetary commitment to that. But uh, he said, you know, it, it's a conversation for possibly further down the road. But 
as you can imagine, a lot of these chiefs and cookpeas and indigenous leaders, uh, they want answers now on how they can move forward uh, with this process once they believe these uh, suspected unmarked graves are discovered. Yeah, I can imagine. All right, Kamal, thank you so much. Thanks for your time. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, you may have heard in the news about what is happening with our poultry population in this province. There is a serious concern about the spread of this avian flu pathogen. Over the weekend, about 4,000 turkeys expected to be euthanized on a farm in the Fraser Valley. And this is because of the spread of this highly pathogenic avian flu. So what is happening out there? Well, there are all sorts, of, all sorts of precautions are being taken, but we thought let's learn more about that now. Joining us now is Noel Ritson-Bennett, who's the Western Area Chief of the National Emergency Operations Center for Avian Influenza. Noel, thank you for being with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. First of all, I didn't realize there is a National Emergency Operations Center for Avian Influenza. How does that work? Well, so we, we do have a, there is a National Emergency Center that's based in Ottawa, and then we have a Western Area uh, Operations Center as well. And so I, I'm, I'm the planning chief for the Western Area Operations Center. Um, and so, yeah, we, we, we have about 90 premises across Canada so far that have, uh, have been impacted by avian influenza since so, uh, the beginning of the year. So, yeah, what happens in a normal year? How is this unusual? So it's very unprecedented. Usually um, we may not see any. Uh, the last case that I recall we had in 2014, 2015, we had, we had cases in the Fraser Valley, um, but, but really it tends to be quite sporadic and, and often usually geographically isolated. But this year we're seeing it right across North America, as a matter of fact, not just Canada. Okay, and so what caused this? What happened? So avian influenza is a virus. Um, that that is that is amongst um, typically amongst waterfowl and migratory waterfowl. So we're seeing these birds, so geese and and ducks and and other swans, things like that, are, are moving from their winter nesting sites and they're migrating to to their their summer nesting sites. And 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 when they're they're moving northward, they're they're bringing that virus along with them. Um, and and so there's opportunity for for spread to other birds and, and potentially within our, our domestic uh, birds as well. Okay. Now, when you put it that way, how can we possibly prevent something like this from happening? I mean, you're talking about the migration of birds. That would be very challenging. Right. So we're not, we're certainly not looking at stopping the migration of birds, but we're asking bird owners. So backyard flock owners, as well as commercial uh, bird producers to, to practice heightened biosecurity to make sure that they're pre- trying to prevent the, 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 the possible introduction of the virus into their into their flocks. Okay, and so yet it seems to still be spreading. So what's happening? It's really it's hard to, hard to tell for sure. Um, in, in some instances, in particular those those backyard flocks that have their out, outdoors, they have access to ponds. For for instance, they may share those the, those environments with wild with wild birds, and so there's opportunity for spread in, the, in those spaces uh with the commercial producers it's, it's a little bit more difficult to say um we're not sure at this point in time but we, but obviously that some it's in some instances there's there's been opportunity for the virus to get into the flock so then how do you deal with that if it gets into the flock what are the next steps so once we've diagnosed the avian influenza in in a a flock whether it's a commercial flock or a smaller backyard flock uh, the birds are humanely euthanized 
and then we go through a process where we we dispose of those birds appropriately, um, as well as complete uh, cleaning and disinfection on the, on the premise, and um, we pay compensation for for those uh, birds or, by, or products that have been ordered destroyed. So that was happening over the weekend in the Fraser Valley. Now, I, I heard like a couple months ago, we were talking about this being in the interior. Is it spreading, Noel? Well, again, we've, we've seen cases throughout Canada. So we, we've, and there's been lots of evidence to say that we've, it's been in within wild bird populations for several months now. So uh, I wouldn't characterize it as spreading per se. I, I would say it's present in the environment uh, throughout Canada. So what are the next steps then that you that your organization will have to take to protect the population? So again, we're we're somewhat at the at the whim of, of wild birds. Um, we're asking people to to try and, and and practice heightened biosecurity, and and then as we're responding within specific uh, uninfected premises, we we do surveillance in the area. We we test uh, other commercial flocks and make sure that that there's no that there's no other flocks that are impacted as well as we there's restriction of, of movement sometimes in and out of those areas. Okay, so then how can a farmer be on the lookout for this? Like how would they know if their flock has been infected? So typically it's 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 pretty it's pretty obvious the signs and symptoms of avian influenza are are pretty dramatic in in most instances oftentimes we see very high mortality so birds will be will die that's usually the for the first sign that to, to say that something uh, might be going on but it, in other instances we could see things like reduced feed consumption reduced water consumption um, reduced egg production uh, sometimes the birds will get diarrhea um, so so again they, they get sick and, and they, they get the flu essentially okay so then if if uh, a poultry farmer recognizes this and or sees this anybody sees this in birds what should they do so producers who have should, should call their veterinarian or they can call the, the, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. We do have a, a sick bird line. Um, anyone who finds sick or, or wild birds, dead wild birds, can call the Canadian Wildlife Health Cooperative um, and, they, and they can arrange for testing. But we're, we're asking people to, to uh, again, practice good spot security and, and, and pr- try to prevent contact with, with wild birds. All right, Noel, thank you so much for your time on that. No problem. Thank you. That's Noel Ritson-Bennett, who's the Western Area Chief of the National Emergency Operations Centre for Avian Influenza. And yes, they have one of those. And right now, there is a lot of concern about this Asian, the, the bird flu essentially making the rounds, uh, it seems like, of, of many poultry farms in BC. You heard about some of the problems they had in the interior. Now here in the Fraser Valley, about 4,000 turkeys euthanized over the weekend because of this. Some years we don't have it at all. This year, as Noel said, is a bit unprecedented in that regard. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time now for our new series here on CKNW. It's called Capacity Crisis, BC's Healthcare System. It's going to explore the direct impact of this crisis on different groups, individuals, and all of you out there, just everyday British Columbians. So we're talking today about COVID-19 cases. I know it's not top of mind for people out there anymore, but there are still a lot of cases out there, even chances of getting reinfected with the virus at this point. So let's talk more about that. Joining us now is Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director and Infectious Diseases Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre. Good morning, Dr. Conway. Good morning, Simi. How much are you still dealing with the impact of COVID-19 in your work? On a daily basis. 
there are people coming in with respiratory symptoms, individuals who uh, we uh, do a rapid test and it's positive. We counsel them to uh, go home, to stay away from others for several days. And we try to find out who around them might also have been infected. COVID is still around. Do you think people are underestimating that? I think people would like a break from COVID, and I fully understand that. But we uh, will benefit from it being warmer, from us doing more things at a distance outside. So that will reduce the risk of transmission. Our vaccination rate is high enough so that if someone is infected, the likelihood of being hospitalized is decreased. So I think that it makes it go into the background, but we we cannot underestimate COVID. It's still there. And yet here we are, as you said, heading into summer here. And do you see another wave happening? Do you see the number of cases staying high? I think we're into endemic COVID. I stopped using the word wave. Others like it. uh, But my, my feeling about waves is that waves end. So people are saying, well, is this the last wave and then it's over? I like to think of this as endemic COVID. It's around, it'll be around for the foreseeable future. Get your shots, stay home if you're sick, keep washing your hands, have a mask on your person to use appropriately, and let's get ready for the fall. Okay, and why get ready for the fall? What do you think is going to happen? I think there will be an increase in the number of cases as we begin to do more things indoors. There may even be new variants. Immunity from the vaccines we have received will start to wear off. We'll be making strategic decisions about who is going to get their fourth shot and when. So I think to put ourselves into a position to deal with that as as well prepared as we can is going to serve us well going forward. Okay, it's going to be hard to keep reminding people, though, isn't it, Dr. Conway? Because as you said yourself, people don't want to think about it anymore. Well, it's kind of okay that they don't think about it in their minute-to-minute or day-to-day lives. But I will give you an example. I was at my first scientific congress in person last week in Ottawa. First one in over two years. And the the organizers put together a a COVID-friendly sort of set of instructions that included, you know what, in the sessions, masks are expected. You don't know who's around you, who's immunocompromised. Uh, And please, if you're sick, stay in your hotel room. We've arranged for the conference to be live streamed to your room if you can't attend in person. So I think these are the kinds of things where we're going to be almost normal, but we'll make accommodations for COVID in our day-to-day lives. I'll tell you something interesting that I've also heard from people, though, is that, you know, during during the pandemic, it was accepted to, you, you know, if you were sick in any way, shape or form, sniffles, whatever, you don't go to work. And that really changed our thinking. I, I feel like we're kind of slipping back into that, though, the idea that even if you have a few sniffles, you're still going to go to work. Oh, absolutely. I think that we need to stick to that. If you're sick, stay home. This courageous person that medicates themselves to make it through the day gets home and then crashes immediately on their bed the minute they open the door. I think that that is a thing of the past. We need to have as part of our overall culture, COVID or not, that if you're sick, you stay home. This way you will recover more quickly. You'll be back to 100% and back to work more productively more quickly. And other people around you will thank you because they won't get sick. And that's COVID and other things than COVID. That needs to be part of our new normal, I think, forever. 
So when you say we're at, like, at the endemic phase now, is it going to turn into the same kind of warnings that we get every fall as we do, say, with the flu? Absolutely. That's exactly where I think we're headed. And I suspect that we'll be getting yearly flu shots and COVID shots, perhaps combined into the same injection for the foreseeable future. The COVID shot is more effective than the flu shot. Perhaps those that make flu shots will learn from how the COVID shots were made and make theirs more effective too. But I think this idea of a yearly vaccination to protect against respiratory infections is uh, something uh, that I think Hmm. is, is a positive going forward. Dr. Conway, how has COVID changed in the last year or so with all these mutations, different variants that we have had? What is different about it? It's more transmissible. It may or may not be causing less severe disease. And it evades the immune system in much the same way as the influenza virus itself modifies itself on a year-to-year basis not necessarily to evade the immune system, but it does that so that we have to change the vaccine every every year. I think the big thing we haven't figured out is, is there a virus out there that is both most severe and evading the vaccine? We hope not, but I think the way to protect against that is for all of us to get our shots as soon as we can. All right. Lots to look forward to, I guess, this fall. We'll see what happens. Dr. Conway, thanks for your time. Well, let's enjoy the summer. I look forward to talking to you again. (laughs) Let's do that. That's Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director and Infectious Diseases Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre. Yes, enjoy the summer, he's saying, but let's not forget in the back of our minds that we do have this very transmissible COVID-19 virus out there. And then he says, prepare for the fall where we're turning it into the situation of how we treat the flu, essentially. Now, if you want to weigh in, Simi at CKNW. This is Mornings with Simi. Things are definitely changing in the housing market. So as if you're not already paying more for everything else in your life, if you're thinking about buying a new home, well, guess what? Things are going to cost you more there too, particularly when it comes to your mortgage costs. So with the Bank of Canada raising that benchmark interest rate, you are seeing mortgage rates go up banks everywhere right across the country. In fact, according to an analysis that was done by North Cove Advisors and Edge Realty Analytics, they say that new monthly mortgage payments on a typical home went up about $800 between October and April. Now, as you can imagine, that is changing things in the housing market. Let's find out how much. Joining us now is Dane Idle, President and CEO of Idle Insights, where they specialize in real estate analytics. Dane, thanks for being with us. Great to be back with you, Simi. So do you agree with that assessment of how much people's mortgage payments are going up? Uh, it actually depends on the asset class that you're looking at. So really what we're looking at right now is a, an effective double. So it's gone from roughly around 2% of mortgage interest rates to well over 4 now. Um, but let's just use 2 and 4 as, a, as, a, as kind of a barrier here. So basically from the 2% average sale price um, of the detached market, which is 2.312 last month, if you did have a 2% mortgage rate, you'd be paying right around $7,800 a month. Now that price, that that cost has increased over $1,900 if you're buying into the detached market. If you're looking at the condo market where the average sale price is $840,000, of course, given that you're going to put 20% down, you're looking at a $700 increase in your mortgage cost now. Okay, so that's obviously going to keep people out of the market, don't you think? For sure. And it definitely will um, kind of lower the sites where you're planning to get into the market. So if you're thinking about, you know, the achievement of owning a townhouse, 
you're probably going to have to set your sights a little bit lower and look for a larger two-bedroom condo, something like that. Okay, so what do you think this is doing to the market right now? What kind of impact are you seeing? Well, what's interesting, so basically since 1980, there's been six uh, upswells or uptrends that have increased the market. Typically over those six uh, periods of time, the average increase was 50%. Since July of 2020, the detached market is up 44%. So we're very much close to that topping out uh, effect of the market. And we'll definitely see some corrections coming up. What we're anticipating is between a 14 and a 17% correction from our current point right now. Um, it looks like this month of data might actually come in a little bit lower. So last, last month was probably the high point that has come in. And we'll start to see some softening in the market. Okay, softening how? Softening where? Softening really across the board, especially in the areas that have increased the most. So your outlying markets that, like we've spoken previously on your show, the tertiary markets, the secondary markets have increased the most over this COVID period. So just for example, Pitt Meadows used to be worth um, $1.961 million, and that's actually come off 25% to $1.465. The interesting thing about that, however, is that with these new mortgage rates, you're only saving about $300, even though the equity has dropped over 500000 Right. And I think that goes to that idea that, you know, people were moving to the suburbs because it was cheaper, prices went up, but now people are realizing, listen, if I'm going to spend that much money, I'm not moving out, out to that area. Exactly. And when, when the tertiary markets become the similar type value as the ones closer to the downtown core, you do start to see that natural uh, reverse uh, action. And that's what we've been kind of prescribing here is that the winners will return to the winners, the laggers will return to the laggers, and that's what we are expecting to come up here over the next couple of years. But definitely with the cost of living, everything going up, um, mortgages are going to be a a, a sticking point and and tough for people to enter into the market. So do you see this happening, as you said, over the next few years? Could it, depending on how fast mortgage rates go up? You know what, it's interesting. Because of such the torrid pace that we did go higher, there isn't too many data points during this upcoming period of price discovery. So we could be actually in for a very volatile market over the next year or so as it starts to or as it starts to roll over and find its level on the way lower. We look for trend lines. What we're expecting, again, is between $1.918 million, uh, $1.918 million and $1.98 million as the ultimate settling point for the detached market compared to where we're at right now of 213 Right, but if you're Sorry, 2.312. if you're a homeowner, Dane, and you're thinking about putting your house up for sale, how can you possibly price it realistically when you don't know what's kind of going on in the market? Yeah, you know, it used to be uh, over the last couple of years, price it higher than what the last one had sold, or even you know similar, and just wait back for the multiple offers, and the market will discover the price for you. What we're experiencing now is that, yes, you do have to be sharp with your list price. You do have to garner attention. It can't just be putting a for sale sign on the ground and waiting for your phone to blow up. You do actually have to put some effort into it. And there is some sales process. Again, you're going to have showings. You're going to have multiple showings. And um, ultimately, the buyers will benefit from this as we see more inventory coming back to the market and the buyers are stepping away. So people that are looking to enter the housing market will have much less competition. However, the cost point will ultimately be higher still. Well, that's what I'm wondering is, so the sellers are the ones here who are really going to have to readjust, I think, their expectations. Absolutely. Yes, there'll be some hard conversations after uh, two weeks on the market and uh, some panic setting in, where typically the market doesn't, you know, you're, you're selling between 30 and 60 days. It's just this recent phenomenon that has changed everybody's expectations. We live in a very short-term memory, um, but over the longer period of time, we're just, we're not even close to coming back into a normal market. 
even with the increased inventory, we're still well below where we were last year at this point for inventory levels across the asset classes. It's just really the drop-off in the demand that has kind of led to this period of change. That said, water can't run uphill all the time. This natural cycle to a market, it was inevitable. I love the way you said like, oh, on the market for two weeks and then a reassessment because (laughs) normally, you know, normally I don't know what that means anymore, but there was a time when two weeks was nothing, just waiting for some interest. But now we expect, you know, and you're so right, because I went by a house in my neighborhood the other day that was, uh, has been for sale for two weeks. And every day now that I drive by it, I'm like, huh, still no sold sign on that. No sticker. (laughs) Right. And, but that just shows you kind of the craziness of what our market had been. Yeah. And it, again, it is recency bias, right? So um, sellers will have a period of adjustment. Um, the buyers will probably enjoy this period of pain for the sellers based on all the uh, the last couple of years of increases. But again, the oddity of even with a $500,000 decrease, you're only looking at a 300 discounting your mortgage cost really will kind of cripple this, this, this market. Um, but again, because of the period of uh, increase, we will be in for some volatility, especially on the detached side, especially in those tertiary or secondary markets. All right. Interesting stuff as always. Dane, thank you. Thank you, Simi. Great being with you. That's Dane Idol, President and CEO at Idol Insights. They specialize in real estate analytics and talking about the really right now unpredictability a, a little bit, a little bit of anyway, of the real estate market, not in the way that we have seen in recent years. And that is unpredictable as prices go up, up, up. This is People not quite sure what's happening. Is Should I price my house lower for it to sell? Um, should I offer in lower? It, and people actually having to you know, have multiple showings, as Dane said. What a concept there. So things are changing. Mortgage rates, definitely a huge part of that. The market is slowing down. What do you see happening out there? You tell me, Simi, at CKNW. This is Mornings with Simi. Afghanistan has been back in the news this week. The latest now being that the Taliban government there has ordered women to cover up on TV. Our contributor, Raji Sohal, joins us now for more on that. Hello, Raji. Hi, Simi. Yes. So we, we've heard about this uh, general public order from the Taliban in Afghanistan, just that women must cover up. But then in the last several days, it's been directed at TV news anchors. So these women news anchors, only women, have been ordered to cover their faces on TV. And we all know from even just the pandemic that uh, wearing a mask is for a long amount of time. And if you're being photographed, you have to do that on television, that it's really hard. And people use their faces to express the news at times too. So this has been really hard on those women anchors. um, And many of them have taken to social media to describe uh, how tough it has been for them. But what's really interesting is that in Afghanistan, the male colleagues of these women at TV stations and networks uh, also decided to wear masks uh, in order to show their solidarity, their support for their female colleagues. And I talked to a Canadian photojournalist who's based in Afghanistan, and she's been following the story um, for the New York Times. She said that this display of public support by men for women's rights in Afghanistan is unusual. It's even new there. As far as I can recall, it's the first time men stood up 
for women since the fall of Afghanistan. They did something in solitary and in support of their female colleagues. They made a statement. They just, they didn't do it quietly. What they did is they recorded two programs, two bulletins where they, they, they made a statement as they go on there is like, today is the first day we're covering our faces. We truly believe this shouldn't be done this way. They also spoke to the female news presenter and they, they spoke about how difficult it is to keep the mask on for the several hours there on TV, how difficult it is to speak. And, and they made a statement, you know, they just didn't do it quietly. You know, Raji, that's so interesting, though, because I wonder that's that seems like a big thing, but it's just it's sad that we consider that to be a big thing. Oh, I know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And this photojournalist that I was talking to, Kiana Heyeri, she said that the male counterparts showing their support for these uh, women TV anchors probably is not going to change anything. So she's a photographer. She's a photojournalist. She's attended some of these protests against the latest Taliban order. Um, and they're small, she said, because it's hard to protest there. And this week, she herself self was detained for hours, just kind of at the side of a street. She was pulled aside by the Taliban. But she's hearing that getting detained or arrested is not the norm anymore. It's worse. And the protests have been several of them. They're often very small group of women, uh, extremely brave. I, I, I am at all of these women who come to the streets uh, without covering their faces and uh, they demand their rights. Usually they last, like, if they're lucky, like 15 minutes before it's broken off. As a follow-up story, we've been talking to a lot of these women. What I've learned is Taliban has changed their policy because they don't want to uh, make a lot of sound and disturb the, the international community. They don't arrest them anymore. Their policy has changed, so they basically kidnap the women or assassinate them on the streets quietly, and then a few days later, the bo- the bodies is, the bodies are found. That just sounds horrific, Raji. It does, and like I remember when we were all just all the eyes in the world were watching what was happening uh, last at the end of last summer in August when the Taliban was taking over, and the Taliban kept having this uh, these uh, tele uh, these press conferences and sharing with the world that uh, they were going to uh, be fair to women and putting out this public message that uh, they are not this boogeyman. I mean, it was all obviously just paying lip service. But what's interesting is that's changed with their messaging is they're trying to be more vague about their rules because they know that society is so scared of them that they will uh, enforce the rules on their behalf. Specifically and with a purpose, they leave the rules very vague. They don't define it. They just keep it vague, knowing that the society the fathers, the uncles, the neighbors, from fear, they will impose it on their women, uh, if that makes sense. So a lot of these rules, they're just vague. Like they say, women have to cover, right? And then they just leave it to to society to define it. And unfortunately, because of the trauma uh, Afghan society lived through in the 90s with the first ruling of Taliban, a lot of people are actually really afraid. So they they impose those restrictions on their communities, on their women, uh, on their neighbors. Literally, I know neighbors telling off another neighbor for how their women is dressed. 
So actually leaving it vague deliberately, I think, is a greater concern because they're they're leaving room for it to be interpreted in harsher ways, don't you think? Yeah, I think you're right about that. And the West used to have so many more eyes in Afghanistan, uh, and we would report on what was going on there more. We just don't have nearly as much knowledge about the facts and what's on the ground as we used to. You know, consulates there and embassies there have closed and so many, uh, obviously, the troops have all left. And so now uh, a lot of people in Afghanistan I'm hearing are just feeling like they've been left alone to get crushed by all these rules uh, that the Taliban keeps imposing. And they're imposing them, uh, like my guest was saying, they're pretty quietly, like, you know, they've restricted girls from going to school. They've restricted what jobs women can hold. They're preventing women from showing their faces on on television or in public. And they just keep doing this and rolling this out. And and women there are losing their rights so fast. It must be a very scary thing to even work there. I mean, your, your guest that you were speaking with, I mean, she's Canadian working there. What keeps her working there? Is it just the story? How does she, how does she do that? Yeah, I asked her about that, Simi, and she said she got pretty emotional, uh, to be quite honest. And she said that she does it because uh, she knows that it's important work. It's meaningful work. And someone has to keep caring about the stories that come out of Afghanistan. And when she's talking there about these women who go into the streets and protest, I mean, I cannot uh, imagine the risk that they are taking, not just to their own lives, but to their families. And that makes me think that there must be for them some glimmer of hope. Otherwise, they wouldn't even bother to go out into the streets and protest. But they've also known a life that was really, really different than the one that they experience now. So perhaps that fuels them as well. I'm not sure. But um, I think it's so important, as my guest was also telling me, that we just uh, we do keep eyes on on Afghanistan. And when these big news stories uh, hit uh, news, that we we pay attention to them mm-hmm. and, and keep our, our eyes on what's going on there. We should. Yes, absolutely. Raji, thank you. Thanks so much. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time for us to once again be talking about what is going on in our healthcare system, the way it impacts you, all of you out there, and how you deal with that and how you connect with the healthcare system in our province. So this time around, we're going to be taking a look at the older generations in BC. And we know that seniors are one of the most at-risk groups for so many types of different health concerns and situations. So how do we help them with that while we're also dealing with a lack of connection to the system, like a fewer family doctors and things that seniors need to make sure that they can stay healthy? Well, joining us now is Isabel McKenzie, BC Seniors Advocate. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Good morning. Is this something that you hear from seniors as well about the concern for a lack of a family doctor? We are starting to hear it. Uh, you know, you know. if I go back to when the office opened uh, eight years ago, we didn't hear so much about connection to family doctors, in part because most seniors have had a doctor for a long period of time. But two things are happening. Number one, those doctors are now retiring, and there's no new doctor to take on the, the older adult. And some uh, people who are coming to the province are coming here to retire. And they're not coming with a doctor and they're finding it uh, difficult, if not impossible, to find a family physician here in B.C. So we know that that's always been B.C., hasn't it? Kind of the destination for seniors in other provinces to come and retire to. 
It is. We we don't have the oldest population in Canada, though, and I think that's important perspective to have. So the Maritimes has a, a higher proportion of their population that's over the age of 65 than we have in B.C. And indeed, even in terms of rate of growth, the rate of growth uh, was highest in Alberta, actually, um, not B.C., when we look at the StatsCan data in terms of the retiring population. But um, indeed, we, we are a uh, province, uh, we had the highest in migration, and because our population is older, um, that includes doctors, and they, retirement is only one of the issues uh, that is causing this uh, acute shortage. Okay, and what are some of the other issues you think seniors are having to deal with out there? Well, in addition to the lack of family physicians, which, as I say, is multifactorial, I mean, retirements of Dr. Newt's not wanting uh, to practice in the traditional way and the development of hospitalist positions, which has created a, another avenue for family physicians to, to practice. Um, but in terms of, uh, you know, throughout the whole continuum of the the people who work in healthcare, whether it's the nurses or the lab technicians. Oh, you know what? It's Bill. We seem to be losing you there for a second. Your phone is going in and out. So you know what we're going to do? We're just going to lose that connection momentarily, call you right back, get you back on the line uh, because you were saying some important stuff there about how seniors are dealing with and connecting with the healthcare system. And we want to make sure that we uh, get all of that information there. It is a of critical concern to people if you can't find a family doctor, but imagine how you feel if you are a senior in this province and you can't find a family doctor. As you get older, there are health conditions that crop up. And if you don't have that consistency of care, then how can you make sure that you stay healthy? And that applies right across all age groups, but seniors in particular are vulnerable on this issue. And so I'd also like to encourage you to tell your story on that too. If you've had trouble connecting, what is that situation like? What have you been told how do you manage your care? Maybe you're doing this on behalf of a senior citizen loved one that you have in your family, trying to get them an appointment, trying to take them to a doctor's appointment. What kind of challenges have you been facing? Let me know, simi at cknw.com. And we have Isabel back with us. Thank you for that. Sorry, you were cutting out there and we didn't want to miss what you were saying. So okay, sorry you, about that. that's okay. You were talking about that connection that seniors have with the healthcare system and the ways in which seniors are concerned about what is happening, about maintaining their health. It is. And I think the important thing to keep in perspective is if you look at the population under, 70, under 65, only 1% have high-complexity chronic conditions. So they don't have, you know, significant attachments to the healthcare system. At 65-plus, that number goes to 20%, so 20 times as many people um, need that attachment. They have high-complexity chronic conditions. So they need a family doctor. They need lab services. They need imaging. Um, They may, may need episodic care in a hospital. They may need episodic care in the community. Um, They may need long-term care in the community, either through uh, people coming to their home every day or they have to go into uh, long-term care or assisted living. And right across every one of those health care services, we are experiencing uh, staffing shortages. Now, the reason for the staffing shortages, some of it is we don't have enough people. Some of it 
is because of COVID, people booking off sick, and, and that's causing disruption. Some of the people we need have relatively short training periods of time, like care aides and phlebotomists and lab techs. Some have longer training, like nurses and then, of course, doctors. So, uh, And the other issue is it is going to be some years before we see data that tell us the impact of these shortages. And that is what I think is concerning, is that we're not really, we're, we're hearing the impact anecdotally, I can't get to this, I can't get that. But in measuring the true impact in health outcomes, we'll see that two, three, four, and five years from now. But that's too late, though, isn't it, Isabel, to help so many people who need it? Yes, and that is the challenge. It is always a challenge um, to try and solve a problem today uh, where the consequences of that problem are going to be felt tomorrow in every realm. In, uh, and, and I think that is the challenge we are facing uh, today. As a contrast, look at how quickly we moved on COVID. Look at how quickly we moved to get a vaccine look how quickly we moved at the measures that were needed. And we can quibble at the margins about, you know, what, what was actually needed when. But suffice it to say that we moved very quickly because it was uh, in the here and now that we were experiencing the consequences of the problem. And that's the challenge I think we have today. The consequence of not going to the doctor aren't felt the, the, just on that one instance. It's two years down the road when something that should have been diagnosed is now discovered too late to fix. You make such a good point, though, because before the pandemic, there was we always made this argument about, oh, well, the healthcare system is so huge and you can't make it turn on a dime. And some of these things are overwhelming to change. But now we know that's not true. So if that's the case, if we're not doing something now, we're doing it because, well, are we too lazy or we do we lack the will to make it happen? Well, I'm not sure. I, I don't think we're too lazy. I don't think we lack the will to fix it. I think we're having trouble coming to grips with what it's going to take to fix it, which is a lot more money. You know, there's an old saying, everyone wants to go to heaven, no one wants to die. Um, everybody wants better health care, no one wants higher taxes. I just, from my, what is it almost now, 30 years in health care, um, there is no magical solution. There's no working more efficiently, working smarter, all these, you know, catchphrases we've used. At the end of the day, uh, it is supply and demand. And when we need more people than we have in the system, we're going to have to pay them more to incentivize them to come into the system. And we're certainly seeing that in spades with family physicians where very clearly they are simply saying we're not paid enough. We can, you know, quibble about, well, you know, is it fee for service? Is it this? At the end of the day, they're not being paid enough uh, to be a family physician. I think the solution is fairly obvious. We need to pay them more. All right. Well, lots for us to talk about on this topic for sure. Thank you so much for joining us. Okay, my my pleasure. Thanks. That's Isabel McKenzie, BC Seniors Advocate. We're all kind of feeling the pinch in different ways of the crisis in our healthcare system, but seniors in particular really need that connection. So how do we fix it so that they get the care that they need? If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. Coming up, we're going to get a quick check of your traffic.